support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, we're talking to Jennifer Hyman, co-founder and CEO of Rent the Runway. Now, Rent the Runway is a pretty simple idea. It's a clothing, rental, and subscription business for women, which launched in 2008. You can rent clothes piece by piece, where subscribers can pay a monthly fee for a certain number of pieces they can swap out anywhere from one to four times a month, depending on the tier of membership. Rent the Runway also lets customers buy secondhand clothing either after they rent it or just outright from the site. But Rent the Runway has had a pretty intense path from its founding in 2008 to going public last year in 2021. The onset of the pandemic in 2020 cratered the business. 60% of customers canceled or paused their subscriptions, and Jennifer was forced to make drastic cuts just to survive. But things are now swinging back. Jennifer says more and more people are spending their dollars going out, traveling, and generally shifting their spending from things to experiences. There's a post-COVID wedding going on, and Rent the Runway is right there for people. In fact, Jennifer says Rent the Runway is poised to weather the recession because people are still spending money on experiences instead of things. Jen and I talked about that swing in the business and how it goes back and forth, but we actually spent most of this conversation talking about running a company that basically does really high-risk logistics. Rent the Runway has to source clothes, send them to people, get them back, clean them, and send them out again. Jen likes to compare Rent the Runway to Spotify, Netflix, and other subscription businesses, but Spotify and Netflix's products never wear out or get dirty. Jen has to deal with red wine stains at scale. In fact, Rent the Runway runs one of the country's biggest dry cleaning operations, which I find to be completely fascinating. What does dry cleaning innovation actually look like? How often does it hit Jen's desk, and how does it hit the bottom line? My favorite episodes of Decoder are the ones where simple ideas, like renting clothes, turn out to be incredibly complicated to execute. This is one of those. Okay, Jennifer Hyman, co-founder and CEO of Rent the Runway. Here we go. Jennifer Hyman, you're the CEO and co-founder of Rent the Runway. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. There's uh, quite a lot to talk about, but let's start with some basics. Rent the Runway is a it's a simple idea that's actually a very complicated business. So can you just explain for people what Rent the Runway is and how it works? Sure. We rent clothes to women. That's the simple idea. And we rent clothes in two ways. The way we started was renting designer clothing a la carte to women before special events. So if a woman's going to a wedding or a holiday party, she can come to Rent the Runway, find a dress that she loves for 90% off the retail price, and we'll send it to her and the second size for free before that event. So she's booking the dress just like she's booking a hotel reservation. We also offer a subscription to fashion, which has become the majority of our revenue, where users are paying a monthly fee to receive access to basically an unlimited closet in the cloud of designer clothing. And they basically can wear that clothing on rotation. And so think of that as more of like a Spotify for fashion. And that now is a really popular service and our customers use that service to get dressed about 80 days of the year. So we've gone far beyond renting clothing for special occasions. She's now using us for her everyday life. So everything from renting kind of, you know, clothes to wear to work, obviously of 
still nighttime occasions, but, you know, everything in between, like casual clothes just to wear around your neighborhood as well. So that shift to we're going to have a membership model. I talked to so many CEOs who got pushed into sort of recurring revenue lines. They have to invent something. Was that we've got to stabilize our revenue or is that this is we see this is where the customers want to go? The original idea for Rent the Runway was, in fact, the closet in the cloud. I thought that idea was too radical for 2008. When I had the initial idea for Rent the Runway, number one, women weren't renting clothes. They weren't wearing clothing that other women had worn before. And brands were certainly not participating in the sharing economy in any way. So I thought that had we launched with a membership model, we would have failed right out of the gate. So we had to launch with a product experience that was really easy for both the consumer to understand, but also something that the brand could get behind as well. So for the consumer to understand, the initial product was rent a dress for a special occasion. And that completely made sense to women because every woman's been invited to some black tie event or been invited to be a bridesmaid, knowing that she's going to buy something that she's only going to wear once or twice and then discard. And from a brand perspective, dresses has always been a negative margin category for them because women have effectively been renting the runway from retail stores for many decades where they buy a dress, keep the tags on, wear it, and then return it to the store. So brands were like, okay, yeah, you can take away my negative margin category and actually convert women into my brand who might be younger, who might be trying this brand for the first time around this concept of rental. So we started where we did because we thought that was the best way to actually prove out demand for the business and generate revenue. The vision was always that 50% of the closet is effectively underutilized and or dead because it's worn three times or less. And that closet was what was prime for substitution with the subscription to fashion. So what we've been doing in the category for many decades is We've been buying a lot of stuff that we wear once or twice, and then we don't wear it again. Now, why? It's because the number one consumer value for men and women when it comes to fashion is variety. People want to use clothes to express themselves, and how you want to express yourself changes over time. So you want to wake up today and I feel relaxed today. That's how I want to express myself. Tomorrow, I want to feel like a boss. I want to express myself differently. And so what ended up happening over the last few decades is as retailers like fast fashion retailers, like Amazon fashion, started giving us high quantity at lower prices, we as the consumer took those retailers up on it. We said, okay, I actually do want a new outfit every day. I'm going to up the number of units I purchase per year. But what happened is as units purchased per year doubled over the last 30 years, utilization of those units declined precipitously. And we end up in a situation where fashion is both one of the most environmentally unsustainable industries, but it's certainly one of the most financially wasteful industries out there because we're buying 50% of the stuff that we don't really use. So we always knew that that was the vision from the business standpoint. What was really interesting internally was figuring out when we can move into that vision from a consumer standpoint. What was the key for you when you said, okay, the consumers are ready to pay a membership fee monthly to access our inventory? We've always had this really interesting feedback loop with our customers in that they have proactively wanted to give us information after they rent about how the items fit, and where they wore it and feedback on the experience so that we could better personalize Rent the Runway to them, but also so that they can kind of pay it forward for other women. And about five, six years into the business, we started hearing from our own customers kind of in droves that they were hacking our special event product. So what they would do is they would rent a cocktail dress for a party that they were going to on a Saturday night, and they'd actually keep it and wear it into work on Monday or Tuesday and put a blazer over it. And they started telling us that whereas it was great that we were offering them a service for their Friday and Saturday nights, the thing that was most important to them in their life was showing up at work and feeling self-confident and wearing 
brands that made them feel powerful? And could we create a product that enabled them to get dressed the other five days of the week? And so our initial subscription product, which we launched midway through 2016, was really just about work and special occasions. And then from there, we just again started hearing from the customers, hey, yeah, like, I want to use this when I go out to dinner. I want to use this when I go skiing. I want to use this when I'm pregnant. I want to use this when I go on a beach vacation. And we started kind of expanding the assortment so that her engagement with the product increased. We went from customers in 2016, probably using the subscription 30, 40 days of the year to now using the subscription over 80 days of the year. And of course, there's cohorts of subscribers that we have that use it, you know, far over 100 days of the year to get dressed. And I think as we increase the options for her, she's shown, you know what, I will actually rent jeans and a blouse from you just as much as I'll rent a ball gown. What's the pricing model that supports all these different uses? Like if you're using it 100 days a year, are you paying more than if you're using it five days a year? You are. So that's one of the major shifts that we made in our business model over COVID. We used to have a product where there was one subscription and it was priced at $159 a month. And for that, you could receive unlimited shipments. So what was happening was as customer engagement increased, our gross margins were decreasing because shipments were going up. And then in early 2020, actually prior to the pandemic, we shifted from one plan into personalized plans where you pay for your usage. So now there's kind of three or four programs in which you onboard into, and you're paying essentially for the number of items that you're receiving per month. And if you want to receive more items per month, you have to pay more you can easily kind of onboard into a program and then personalize the subscription as you go. And we find that actually 30% of our customers end up adding additional items into their subscription. So another way to kind of think about that is 30% are personalizing on top of the program that they're onboarding into. And we find that engagement tends to go up over time. So now when she does use us 100 plus days of the year, we're making more money off of that. And we're making actually a higher margin off of that customer than we make off the customer who uses us less because she's now putting more items into the same shipment. So we're sending her a package with six articles of clothing in it at a time, as opposed to four articles of clothing in it at a time. That margin idea is something I want to come back to several times, but just from the jump, what this sounds like to me is a very complicated inventory business. Right. You're sending things out to people. I'm assuming you all hope that they're going to treat them well. They come back to you. You've got to clean them. I'm assuming people are very sensitive to how clean the garments are when they receive them. You've got to match them with other people. As your customer base grows, you've got to have the right inventory in the right places at the right sizes. How do you manage all that? Well, that's really what the business is. Um, That's what we've built in terms of our reverse logistics technology and processes and all of the software that we've built around customer preferences for inventory, the data that we're getting and how that feeds into how we work with our brand partners to actually source that rental product, which has also completely transformed. I would say that in some ways you're right and in some ways you're wrong. The way that you're right is that because we've done tens of millions of rentals and we've actually processed and restored tens of millions of articles of clothing, we're now one of the world experts, if not the world expert, in how to very quickly and efficiently restore a piece of luxury fashion to perfect condition with a zero-day turnaround time in order to actually send it out to another customer. How that's reflective in the financials of the business is that if you look at a traditional retailer, so think about a department store, think about ASOS.com, their product cost as a percentage of revenue hovers around 50 to 55%. Our product cost as a percentage of revenue in 2021 was around 25%. So 
we're able to get more revenue off of our product than a traditional retailer. What we've really done is turn what in most fashion businesses is considered a liability. This dress that I'm wearing is a liability. In our business, it's a long-term asset that we're monetizing over three plus years. And we've proven with our 12 years of data that we actually make money from this dress over three plus years. That's the place where you're right, that it's complicated, but we figured it out. And I think that us figuring it out has created a massive competitive moat for Rent the Runway. Now, where you're wrong is that there are some stereotypes about the fashion industry that we've effectively disproven. One of the major long-held truths in the fashion industry that is actually completely false (laughs) is that fashion goes out of style and it goes out of style quickly. So here's what we believe as like the general population. We believe that something enters a store in March, it's a new spring item, and that three months later, that thing is no longer wanted and you need to start to mark it down. And then a few weeks after that, you have to start to clear it from your floors because no one wants it anymore. And then maybe it ends up in an off-price channel or maybe it ends up kind of being jobbed out to another country, etc. Now, why do we believe this? We believe this because this is how the retail industry has always run. We also believe it because the fashion industry has always wanted us to believe this. They want us to believe this because their business model doesn't work unless they could convince you to buy more stuff that you don't need. So they're trying to convince the consumer that top that you bought last spring, it's no longer in fashion. You need to buy more tops right now. In reality, we've seen based on 12 years of our data, that what the customer actually wants is she wants to wear a new outfit every day. She has no idea whether that new outfit walked a runway two seconds ago, a year ago, two years ago. She just wants it to be new to her. As long as this dress that I'm receiving from Rent the Runway looks like it's in brand new condition, and I've never worn it before, so it allows me to express myself differently, it feels like that high of wearing something for the first time. So we've actually proven that there's a much longer tail to monetization of fashion than you would think. And this idea of a trend, there are trends, by the way, but trends don't seep through the U.S. population in three months. Often, trends take five to seven years to seep through the U.S. population. So an example of this, when we launched our business in 2009, the biggest trend as it related to dresses was called asymmetric, which essentially meant a one-shoulder dress. And that trend was basically hot and heavy for about six years We were utilizing one-shoulder dresses for six years. And there's an arc to a trend. So we're able to see, based on our utilization data, when the trend was starting to dissipate. And we were able to clear out of those units with more than enough time. And kind of the trend died around 2015, let's say. Interestingly, that trend is back today. (laughs) So, you know, we're... It's it's weird that I've been doing this business enough that I'm seeing trends kind of come back into the cycle. But we've essentially proven that fashion actually is a longer-term asset than anyone gave it credit for. And we also benefit from the fact that we have a diversity of customers all over the country. So just from a pure fashion point of view, if there's a very, very fashionable woman who lives in New York And let's say she wants something that walks off a runway a second ago because she follows all of the celebrities and she's on social media all the time. I'm telling you that even in a place like San Francisco or Dallas, both of which are fashionable cities that have high-end, you know, educated consumers, they're not even interested in that trend until six to nine months later. If you want to I feel talk like you're about, you're wading in some dangerous New York versus San Francisco territory here. Tell me about LA. 
Well, LA and New York are probably the most similar in when they want access to kind of newness amongst that hyper-fashionable segment. But then think about the fact of like, you know, those women who are our customers and they might be in Ohio. They're actually not wearing that trend for two to three years after the woman in New York or LA is wearing that trend. So we're benefiting from, you know, a long tail as well of geographic diversity of the asset. So that, again, this to me is a very complicated, like inventory management question, right? You have your own distribution centers. Do you have a team that's like, all right, asymmetric dresses over in New York, Ohio is going to get them next. We're moving all the stock to Ohio. So we have, of course, like, a data science team and a planning team that is truly been central to our business for 13 years. So the first C-level executive that I hired at Rent the Runway was a chief data officer because our business is about making money off of clothes over the long term. So we've built all of the algorithms and the analytics behind understanding you know, how do you monetize your inventory over time? And it's actually simpler than you're making it out to be. Um, No, you don't have to move the inventory in your warehouses because we have enough scale that we have these two distribution facilities and you can ship to Ohio out of the (laughs) same facility that you ship to New York out of. So I think that the core competencies of the business are the reverse logistics processes that we've created to be able to rent stuff, the data competency that we have to understand what women want and how we should personalize your experience to get you product that you love and that fits you. And of course, the brand relationships that we have that enable us to access that product in really innovative and interesting ways that benefit both us and our brand partners. When you say reverse logistics, it's reverse because the stuff comes back to you from the customers, right? Yeah. So if you think about the best retailer in the U.S., which is Amazon, and the only reason I know this stat is because my chief supply chain officer used to run North America fulfillment for Amazon. So at Amazon, 95% of their processes are built around outbound logistics, It's the pick-pack-ship process to get you the toothbrush or the whatever that you're ordering on Amazon. And only 2 to 5% of that product ever gets returned to Amazon. Amazon's actually a best-in-class because of how low their return rates are. And so as a business, you're going to innovate and prioritize around your happy path, which is the 95% pick-pack-ship process. In our business, 98% of the product that comes into our warehouse is product that we're receiving back from another customer. It's returns. It's what at Amazon is 2 to 5% for us is 98%. The other 2% that we receive is just direct to vendor the first time we receive the product and we kind of unpack it and put it onto our racks. So we've designed our logistics processes not really around the core competency of pick, pack, ship, which we think is pretty standard e-commerce. We're designing and building the software around inbound logistics as opposed to outbound logistics. And that's where we have developed a lot of the, I think, special sauce of the business that allows us to actually take this dress and rent it over multiple years and do a better and better job over time. So one of the things we shared on a recent earnings call is just between 2020 and 2021, we lowered our product deactivation rate by 30%. I mean, that's an enormous number. That means that we're keeping inventory in like new condition 30% more than we did just a year ago. And I think that you don't make those kind of leaps overnight unless you had built this massive foundation and done the tens of millions of rentals beforehand. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we discuss how Rent the Runway is structured and what really destroys clothes, because it turns out it's not customers. We'll be right back. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. 
transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. We're back with Jennifer Hyman. Before the break, you were talking about your chief data officer, your chief supply chain officers. So it feels like a good time for the decoder questions. How is Rent the Runway structured? What are your lines of business? Who are your reports? How does the basic structure of the company work? Yeah, so we have a president and COO. So that's one role. She's been at Rent the Runway for 10 years. We have a chief technology officer who oversees technology and product. And actually, that's the largest corporate organization at the company. So I would say that 60 to 70% of our corporate employees, our salaried employees, are within Larry's org. We have a chief supply chain officer who oversees the full end-to-end customer experience. So he oversees kind of our inbound logistics, our outbound logistics, transportation, customer service. So his organization has the most people because it includes all of the hourly folks as well as uh, salaried folks who are, you know, developing the reverse logistics processes or managing kind of the customer experience. We have a chief merchant who is in charge of sourcing all of the product from all of the brands, as well as developing the brand relationships. And she's the one who has innovated the model away from wholesale into acquiring our product on consignment, which where we revenue share with our partners. We have a CFO, of course, (laughs) thank God. One of my dreams is to get a CFO on here and be like, what is it that we're doing all day? But I'll get, that's not for you. That's just one of the things I want to dig into one of these days on the show. Our CFO has been at Rent the Runway for seven years and is by massive strategic partner alongside my COO and general counsel. How many people total are at Rent the Runway? We have about 450 corporate employees and probably around 2,000 total employees. Okay, so 2,000 employees. How many customers can that support? How many, how many customers do you have? So we have millions of customers. The majority of those customers are renting from us Reserve, which is our a la carte business, um, where they come a few times a year to rent for a special event. And as of the end of Q1, we had 135,000 subscribers. And every 100,000 subscribers you have equates to about $200 million in revenue. That was my, my next question. Obviously, it's a public company now, so these numbers are out in the world already. Yeah, so the subscription business is a very, you know, I guess, high revenue business. People spend a lot with us per year. So that's where like a very kind of small amount of subscribers equals a lot of revenue. And the reason why these two businesses are so complementary, our reserve business and our subscription businesses, you can imagine people come to rent the runway, they rent for a prom, they rent for a sorority party, a date they're going on when they're in their 20s. And then we get to market to them to join our subscription when they're a little older, when they can afford it, et cetera. Let's come back to the notion that you increase the lifespan of an article of clothing by 30%, which seems really interesting, right? There's a lot of necessary innovation to do that. It seems like you had to invent a lot of things to pull that off. What does that look like? Do people come to you and say, we need to take a big bet on dry cleaning and we have to invest in it and hopefully it'll pay off and that'll help us turn over more? Or is it, 
we're going to outsource tailoring. Like what specifically do you do to make those numbers go up and down? So we've been vertically integrated from the beginning. We're one of the largest cleaners of clothing, definitely in the U.S., maybe in the (laughs) world. We do wet cleaning, dry cleaning, all sorts of cleaning. I know more about cleaning than I ever thought that I would. I actually thought at the beginning of Rent the Runway that this was going to be something that we outsourced. Like, why would we raise venture capital dollars and then go into the dry cleaning business, right? Like, that didn't make any sense. But I very quickly realized within the first year of launching Rent the Runway that most damage of clothing doesn't come from customers. There's a myth that, like, customers ruin clothes. No, they don't ruin clothes. What ruins clothes is the corrosiveness of the chemicals that are used in a cleaning process, both when you put something in your washing machine and or when you kind of dry clean it and send it off. And so if we could develop intelligence around, you know, how to actually care for things, we could actually dramatically up the life cycle of that clothing. So if you were to take your button-down shirt, to a local dry cleaner, and you just said, clean this for me. The way that they're cleaning your clothes, you could probably get about six or seven turns off of that button-down shirt before it starts to look a little worn. I don't want any of the clothes on Rent the Runway to look worn. I want there to be at least the suspension of disbelief that you're receiving something. It's in like new condition. You have no idea how many times it's been worn before you're using it. That's part of the magic of Rent the Runway. We shared when we IPO'd that every single article of clothing we had in our possession historically had already turned on average a minimum of 20 times. But we also shared that during COVID, because revenues went down so precipitously, that we chose to sell things before they were kind of ready to be sold. So that 20 turns, we were effectively signaling that's a conservative number guys, because we, we were selling things, you know, because we had to make <laughs> money during COVID and we could have rented it longer. So we've, at the most conservative end, tripled the lifetime of garments while it's still looking brand new based on what you would do on your own. And in reality, far more than tripled the lifetime of garments. And what that does is the more that I can keep this dress in like new condition for longer, it means I have to buy less inventory going forward. So I shared that product as a percentage of revenue in 2021 was around 26%. And you'll see that that percentage actually could go down over time as we keep clothes in better condition longer. And that already is a structural advantage of our model. So what- Wait, how many people do you have thinking about cleaning clothes every day? Well, about cleaning clothes- Yeah. Do you have a department of clothing restoration or something like that? We have a garment science department. Yes. Um, Okay. Yeah. That's what kind of we're getting at. It's not that big of a department in terms of kind of managers in it. Maybe it's, you know, a few people, three people, but that garment science department is also working very closely with our data group and our tech group that's actually built the software that enables us to understand what's happening with every garment so that the garment science team is able to operationalize against the data and the software. So let me give an actual example of what I mean. Yeah. We implemented RFID on all of our products at the end of 2021. Prior to implementing RFID, there was a barcode on every product. And That barcode was kind of a license plate against the garment. And we knew and carried data based on the barcode, what that style was, and therefore what cleaning action we should take in order to maximize, you know, turns for that style. So it's not as simple as should it be dry cleaned or wet cleaned? It's like, should it be dry cleaned, wet cleaned? How many minutes should it be in a machine? What mechanical action? What temperature should it be at? What solvents are you putting in? There's dozens of solvents you can put into a machine, all of which for us are kind of green. We used to do this scientific work based on the style of the garment, and we might have you know 500 copies of this style. Today, we're able to 
utilize that data that we have against the unit. So if we know that this unit is coming back with a red wine stain, because the customer has just told us that she's returning it with a red wine stain, if we know that this particular unit had some sort of issue in the past, we're actually going to funnel it into a different cleaning process than we would have before. So we're using kind of automation to pre-sort our clothes into 26 different cleaning processes today based on the data that we have at an individual unit level. Now, let's say that a competitor came about and they had access to all of this data. And they knew exactly how you should clean the item in order to maximize turns like from the get-go, like data that it took us tens of millions of rentals to learn. Even if they had that data, they would need the scale of doing millions of rentals per year in order to fill up enough machines in order to actually do 26 sorts. So that's where I come to like this is fundamentally a logistics business in that you're you know, trying to optimize your process flow at every single step of the operation. And one of the things that I'm proudest of in terms of taking lemons and turning it into lemonade is I've been very open that COVID sucked for Rent the Runway. Like there's really no real customer use case when you're sheltered at home for our business because our business is based on going somewhere, going to work, (laughs) going to dinner, going to a show, going on vacation, going to a party. You need to literally leave your house in order to care about clothes, at least the clothes that we rent, because we're not renting you stuff that you can lounge on on your couch. We're really there's, renting There's no these sweatpants things. on Rent the Runway? But there are sweatpants on Rent the Runway. And but they're like high-end athleisure sweatpants. Yeah, right? and and we did make money in 2020. We generated $157 million in revenue, but you know it's not the $300 million in revenue that we're going to generate this year when people are actually leaving their homes. So it's just more difficult for us. It's harder to generate demand. So therefore, in 2020, we had far fewer shipments heading through our facilities. So we came into 2020 having January, Feb of 2020 were the two best months we'd ever had in the history of Rent the Runway. Our business was on fire. And then kind of one weekend in March 2020, when everyone in the U.S. sheltered at home, 50% of our subs paused or, you know, canceled that weekend. And suddenly we had kind of these empty warehouses or we had warehouses with far less volume. So after we kind of secured the financial runway that we would need to survive through COVID, we transitioned as a business into positioning the company both strategically and financially for who we wanted to be when we came out of COVID. So we took this kind of white space that we had of, wow, we have these two facilities. We have 12 years of data on how the business runs. Let's rebuild our operation as if we were starting today with all the knowledge that we have. So we added a massive amount of automation, process changes, data changes, tech changes into our facilities in 2020 that resulted in a 30% decrease in our non-transportation costs year over year. So we were basically lowering the cost of fulfillment dramatically by nature of kind of utilizing this knowledge that we have, in addition to the fact that we lowered the product deactivation rate by 30%. It just is, it happens to be weird that it's both of those two metrics are 30% decreases. But that's an example of, I think, the culture of the company where not resting on any situation good or bad, like always thinking about continuous improvement, always thinking about taking advantage of a situation in order to, you know, better the company and and iterate. So super proud that that's evidencing itself today in our fulfillment margins and our gross margins, all of these changes that we made during what was the most difficult time we've ever had. Well, that leads, I think, into the, the classic decoder question. How do you make decisions? What's the framework you use to make decisions? Well, I understand about myself that I'm a very customer-driven, vision-driven 
emotionally driven human. And I'm definitely someone who is constantly thinking about and trying to understand what are the changes and how we live and how do those changes lead to opportunities. Some people would call that kind of a visionary sort of capability. And I think that I have that in terms of how I think about the world and the problem set. Now, because I know that I think in this very big, strategic, visionary, customer-focused sort of lens, I think that that is entirely dangerous as a way (laughs) and a framework to make decisions. So I've been very intentional about surrounding myself with brains that think literally the opposite of how I think in every component. So when I think about how I make decisions, I like making decisions around tensions, around healthy tensions. So, you know, that is why the first C-level executive I brought into the company was a chief data officer because I wanted someone who thought about the world in the opposite way of me. I'm an optimist. He was a pessimist. I was thinking about like customer feedback on like a very qualitative basis of having the conversations. He was looking at massive data sets and kind of being able to figure out if what I was saying was, you know, bullshit or not. And I would say that I have very much hired in the most powerful positions in the company. So if you think about who are the two most powerful people at Rent the Runway besides myself, one is Anushka, my president and COO, who has been at Rent the Runway for 10 years. Two is my CFO, Scarlett. Those two individuals are unbelievably analytical, extremely data-driven, thinking about what could go wrong before they think about what could go right. Anushka is very much about well, this might be a good idea, but how will we get this done? How is it actually going to be operationalized? What's the real ROI? What are the trade-offs? What will we not have to work on in order to do this? And I actually think that's the best way to make decisions, that you're basically putting your, your biggest obstacles in front of you so that you can kind of challenge each other and come to a better decision together. So... That's always been both my decision-making framework, but it's also my leadership's framework of when I think about building an incredible executive team that functions really well together, it's about bringing people together who not only have competencies that are different from one another, but who have ways of thinking that are different from one another as well. And I think that that always leads to a much more strategic answer. Put that into practice for me. I'm obsessed with the dry cleaning situation. So I'm going to make up a situation. Let's go through it. So you've got 26 ways to clean things. The garment science team comes to you and says, we need to light up the 27th. It's going to be $2 million of CapEx. And if it goes right, we're making a bet. If it goes right, we'll be able to turn our clothing 30 times instead of 20 times, whatever. How do you make that decision? So that would be a very, very easy decision to make because they would just start MVPing it. They would do that in a very small way. They would figure out if it works. They'd have very quick data as to how it works. And then they'd be able to model out, okay, this CapEx investment cost me $2 million, but my return on this, it's actually going to take me X amount of months to break even. And then it would be turned to Anushka or Scarlett and saying, okay, is that worth it or not? In terms of that kind of timeline to break even and timeline to ROI. So that would actually be a super, super easy one. When you create the right processes within your company and you have the right team on the ground, there aren't that many decisions you make that are that difficult. But I'll give you a decision that's really difficult. The decisions that are really difficult are where there's no prior data. Right. The most difficult decisions I've ever made as a leader is what do we do in March 2020? And how do I lead the business through COVID? And I made a few decisions there that were just based on my gut instinct. They were not based on any data because it had never occurred in the past. And 
the framework that I was using at that point was I thought that COVID was going to last a hell of a lot longer than everyone thought. I thought that this would have a massively negative impact on our business, which I was right on. I thought that there was almost nothing we can do to drum up demand for rental or for subscription during that period of time because no one had any events and no one was going anywhere. And so the only way for us to make money really during that period of time was on resale. And at the same time, we had all of these people and resources. We did do some layoffs at that time, but we didn't do that many layoffs because I did believe there was going to be a world after COVID that actually could be more conducive to Rent the Runway than it ever had been before. So I was also making guesses around what would the world be when we came out of COVID. Now, I actually think that a lot of those guesses were right as well. I thought that people would actually value experiences even more than ownership after COVID. And if you look at the early data from 2022, you're seeing that Bookings.com is having its best year ever. Airbnb is having its best year ever. Live Nation is having its best year ever. People are going to more restaurants than they've ever eaten at before. All of those things are incredible leading indicators of Rent the Runway. Because what do people do when they go to concerts or go out to dinner or go on vacation or whatever? They rent the runway. So the more that people spend on their experiences, like the better. The other assumption that I had is this assumption around people thinking about how they spend their money differently because of the experience of COVID. So I think we all globally were in this collective two-year experience where we were stuck at home. And when we were stuck at home, we were staring at all the things that we had ever purchased in our life that maybe were wasteful, that didn't make any sense because we actually used a very limited number of things during COVID. I mean, I remember going into my own closet during COVID and realizing that I was wearing the same freaking thing every single day and that I made, essentially my closet was a reminder of all the bad decisions that I've made in the past. <laughs> That's effectively what I've been preaching for a decade. I've been preaching this idea that 50% of the closet is dead to you. And we had a two-year period where most people were literally working in their bedrooms for two years, staring at their closets, staring at all the stuff that they had purchased that they don't really have utility for. What I thought would happen is I thought that it would lead to an even more geographically diverse, economically diverse, psychographically diverse potential customer set for Rent the Runway because people that might not have considered renting a dress for a special occasion or having a subscription to fashion might consider it now because of COVID. And we're actually seeing in this early kind of data that we have in terms of the business bouncing back, that that's true. The business is more geographically diverse than it's ever been. It's more psychographically diverse than it's ever been. Because I think that across every category of how we live right now, we're just saying, is this smart how I'm spending my money? And I think the recession is actually potentially going to galvanize that even more. So when you look at the inflation indicators that we're all seeing and the, these rumbles of a recession, you think that's actually going to be net positive because people are going to spend their money more wisely and maybe not on things that they would otherwise not wear? I think that a recession makes everyone from a consumer to a business owner operate within constraints. I think that it certainly makes everyone think about value in a different way, think about how you're going to spend. I don't think there's any business that is recession-proof. I really don't. I think that the recession hurts everyone. But I think that we are fundamentally a business that's about delivering financial value to our consumers. So at least we have a better shot at being able to continue to operate well within a recession if we execute against that value-oriented messaging. But it certainly is an environment where, you know, you have to operate within constraints, more ruthlessly prioritize as a leader, really pick your bets on what you're going to execute against. You have a very customer-focused business, right? It's mostly consumer. You do have these relationships with brands, which seem very interesting as that dynamic has changed, and particularly the big brands have come to embrace some of these business models as opposed to push against them, which they were kind of doing in the beginning. One thing you could do, you know, you've mentioned Amazon several times, 
Amazon is famous for building shared services for its own units and then letting other people buy those services. So logistics or AWS or anything, you have a bunch of these vertically integrated services like reverse logistics, like dry cleaning, whatever it is. Would you ever sell those B2B to other companies? I think that where I am really interested in adding value to brands across fashion and potentially in categories way outside of fashion is on customer acquisition. So you mentioned we've built this very consumer-focused business, and that is certainly true. And it is certainly what my initial vision and thesis for the business was. I'm a consumer-led person. I wanted to build this unlimited closet in the cloud where you could wear whatever you want without having to own it. What I didn't understand fully about the business 10 years ago is that the business would be just as powerful for brands as it is for consumers. So by nature of giving the customer freedom to wear whatever she wants, she actually tries a hell of a lot of new brands. 98% of the time, she's renting a brand she's never owned before. And because she's experiencing that brand in real life and she's wearing it to work or she's wearing it to a party and she feels confident and beautiful wearing it, 80% of the time, she ends up wanting to purchase from that brand in the future. So she familiarizes herself with a Nula Johnson or a Proenza schooler because she comes to rent the runway. She doesn't come with the intention of falling in love with those brands, but because she's wearing them in her real life and experiencing them in her real life, she does, and she ends up being a new consumer of the brand. So one of the reasons why we have 100% retention of all of our brand relationships over the past 12 years is we've become one of their most powerful marketing channels and customer acquisition engines. And if you think about like how powerful this two-sided discovery platform is in a world where the costs of marketing have skyrocketed over the last few years because of iOS changes, as well as the fact that multi-branded retail stores have been closing in droves. So Wait, I just want to I just want to highlight that for a minute. You're saying iOS changes, what you specifically mean is app tracking transparency that kind of killed the cookie marketplace. Mm-hmm. Direct-to-consumer ads have skyrocketed in price because you can't convert against them as well as you used to. Yeah, so if you're any brand, whether you're in fashion or you're in health and wellness or you're selling a tech gadget, like your cost of acquiring a customer has doubled or tripled over the last few years. And you don't have as many retail channels in which to actually introduce yourself to new customers. So think about it this way. I'm a fashion brand. How did I used to gain all my new customers? I used to gain them through my department store customers that I have, my wholesale accounts. One third of all department stores have closed over the last four years. I also used to kind of bank on the fact that people would be introduced to my brand at Saks or at Nordstrom or on Net-A-Porter, and then I would build my own D2C business, which is my own stores and my own e-commerce site as well by attracting those people who might have heard about me at Saks and bringing them into my own business. Well, now the cost of bringing anyone into my own business, D2C, has doubled to tripled. So like my old channels of distribution are getting smaller. My new channels of distribution are more expensive. And I need a way to actually attract this new customer base, a younger customer base someone who could afford my brand. Again, this isn't something that I expected 10 years ago, but it's certainly become, I think, one of the most powerful things about the model. We have an entire population of women who come to our platform who are young and educated and for the most part wealthy or on average much wealthier than the average American consumer. They're exactly the sort of customer base that a lot of these brands actually want. So to your question on shared services, there's no better platform than an Amazon, or I sit on the board of Zalando, which is a huge e-commerce platform in Europe. They've built an incredible shared services model. Both Amazon and Zalando have built that shared services. One of the shared services is advertising, right? Because both of those businesses have a massive amount of traffic. And so clearly advertising makes a lot of sense, or they could build shared services at Amazon around a whole host of things. 
well, what's the core competitive advantage of Rent the Runway? It's who the customer is. It's the reverse logistics process. It's the data that we have. And that all leads to customer acquisition, not necessarily advertising, but like I can kind of bring someone onto my platform, introduce someone to a new brand and have them fall in love with it. We need to take one more break, but when we come back, Jennifer is going to tell us how the data she collects helps designers make better, more durable clothes. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We're back with Jennifer Hyman. At the very beginning of the conversation, you were talking about fashion trends and the desires of fashion brands to move those trends faster, to get people to buy more stuff. Do you perceive any conflict between, oh, a huge part of our business is actually B2B customer acquisition because we're introducing people to brands and those convert to purchases for those brands and also trends last much longer than the fashion industry wants them to? I thus far have really become one of the most powerful and only ways for brands to acquire new customers and to get data that helps them actually change the way they manufacture clothing in the first place in order to make clothes that women actually want. When I'm giving them data on a trend to say, hey, this trend actually continues to persist, that's actually really good for them. It's not necessarily, again, most of these brands, the majority of how they sell is not D to C. It's through other retail channels that are clearing and promotionalizing their product. If they know that this is something that customers continue to want, that's something that they can kind of take that information and monetize it. Like the old world of how fashion existed, where everything that we wore had to be something that we owned forever and bought forever. It doesn't have to be what the next, you know, 50 years of fashion look like. And I think part of what I've been doing over the last decade with brands is helping them bring their business, not just into the circular economy, but trying to be more consumer driven in how they're thinking about their business, and that there's a lot more opportunities for themselves than they may have thought. Do you get any pushback from brands? So you open a clothing rental service. You don't need their permission, right? You can just buy the clothes and rent them. But for a minute, some of the brands really thought you needed their permission. And there there were even, I think, some lawsuits against other kinds of retailers, other kinds of services that did this stuff. There were some trademark lawsuits. Now they seem wholly bought into it, and you're saying, rent the runway, I, Jen, am the most powerful agent of change for these brands. One what of, was that transition one of. Like? I never want to one say of. you're the most powerful. Well, I'll say it. You're, you're doing great. But how, what was that transition? Because that was pretty shaky for them. Well, 
when I approached brands 13 years ago, they hated this idea. Hated, 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 hated. I mean, I can't emphasize how many doors were slammed in my face. There was a CEO of one of the most powerful brands in the world. He happens to be a very smart, great guy, but I was face-to-face in front of him, and he said, hell will burn over before I work with Rent the Runway. (laughs) And he said that dead set. It wasn't like a joke. It was like, I hate you, and I'll never work with you. And in reality, he's one of our most awesome partners today. He actually started working with us like 18 months after that. But... (laughs) One of the rules that I had at the very beginning of this business, and it's very different than others in the secondhand economy, is I would not put any merchandise on my platform unless I had procured it directly from a brand with their explicit permission, with the CEO's permission, with the designer's permission, with the you know, head of sales permission, because I wanted this to be a partnership with the brands. Now, what I could have done is I could have done what others had done. I could have procured inventory from people's closets. I could have bought the clothes at retail stores and then put it up on my platform. But I knew that this was going to be something that if I wanted to build a sustainable business for the long term, I had to make this win-win for the customer and for the brand. And so what that meant in the early days of Rent the Runway was the selection was not what I would have wanted it to be. When we launched Rent the Runway, we only launched with 28 brands. We now have 800 plus brands. And even in the first few years of Rent the Runway, like there were a lot of brands that said no. On average, it took me 10 to 12 meetings per brand to sign on a brand. And the brand would only agree to meet with me like once every six months. And a lot of people in any industry wait until they see others do it before they'll do it. So I had to have incredible patience and foresight that this was actually going to work. And in fact, understanding the dynamics of this industry that had I just put the product that I wanted up on the platform in the early days, I knew that I'd be blackballed from the industry and that they'd never work with me. Now, to this day, we're really the only secondhand player that works directly with brands. When you think about all of the other great businesses in our space, and they are great businesses, all of these businesses are undervalued right now, but like the real, real, Poshmark, ThreadUp, et cetera, they source all their clothes from customers' closets. And again, there's a lot of great things about sourcing your inventory from customers' closets. But what it doesn't give you is it doesn't give you the brand relationship. It doesn't allow you to choose your own selection. So I'm choosing the product I want to be on my platform. I'm choosing that I want 500 of these dresses, that I wanted in a size zero to 16. And I'm able to actually utilize data to understand what selection do I want in order to keep my customers loyal to me. And I'm also doing something where now I'm able to innovate to the point where designers see the benefit in this model and are actually revenue sharing with me on the success of the inventory on their platform. So I didn't actually do anything that was unkosher at the beginning of the business. And in fact, I think those decisions have ended up creating one of the competitive advantages of our business, which is how powerful these brand relationships are. But it led to the business potentially taking off slower in the early days because we didn't have, you know, the assortment that I wanted. It seems like you you described these now as partnerships. You have revenue sharing. It seems like you also collect a lot of customer data that you could share back with those partners. How does that work? What are the data policies here? Like, it seems like a huge opportunity, but also it's very fraught, right? It's how people fit into their clothes and what they're buying. So we're not telling the brand that this is how Jen Hyman fits into your clothing. We're able to aggregate, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of data points around how customers are wearing their clothes around fit, around inventory quality, around how they manufacture, and able to give them really concrete data as to what they need to do in order to have better fitting clothes or to have clothes that last longer or to have clothes that customers want more. So this isn't about the individual sources of data, but it's about saying, okay, like we now know that your product is badly manufactured in these ways. And this is why you might have a high conversion rate and a very low loyalty rate. 
So I think that the data ends up benefiting the brand tremendously, but it also benefits the customer because the more that we can kind of work with brands to ensure that they're making better product, like ultimately better fitting product, better manufactured product, it benefits not only our customers, but it benefits all their customers. We are sadly out of time. I have 10,000 more questions about dry cleaning. Don't you worry about it. But (laughs) I've got to let you go. What's next for Anthe Runway? You've been on kind of a bumpy ride. You've IPO'd now. You're the CEO of a public company. What does the next step look like for you? Well, the next step is driving this business to profitability and continuing to grow the business while we do that. I think that, you know, we've always been a business that's been underestimated. Um, for better or for worse, I tend to look at it from the positive angle that no one expects very much of us right now. And I'm so ready to kind of prove everyone wrong and continue to build a really sustainable business. One of the things that's great is that the customers love this business and the brands love this business. So the people that matter are fans of what we're doing. And I think continuing to deliver to the customer and the brands is really the key to us being able to drive the business to continued growth and to profitability. That's kind of like the financial thing that I'm focused on. But the strategic thing that I'm focused on is furthering this two-sided discovery platform. So I do want to make the experience of renting clothes even more delightful, even easier for the consumer, giving the consumer more choice. Like we have this challenge that renting clothes is amazing and you're getting $40,000 worth of clothes per year and it's incredible and it's magical, but it also is a lot of work. You have to like receive the clothes, return the clothes, like pick out the new clothes that you want. So the more that we invest in personalization and our search and discovery engine and home pickup, like it removes friction from the experience. So I'll be on like a lifelong journey of just continuous improvement of this customer experience and making sure that having a subscription to fashion in the future can become as magical as having a subscription to music. On the brand side, it's really going to be about fostering an even better discovery platform for them and just ensuring that we're helping them acquire new customers earlier in the journey and really becoming a massive partner around customer acquisition for them. That's great. Jen, thank you so much for being on Decoder. I've learned a lot today. When you expand into men's jackets over black t-shirts, I'll be your first (laughs) customer. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for the thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Jennifer Hyman for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like Decoder, hit us with that five-star review. Also, all of you have figured this out already. If you tweet at me about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton B. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Moreno. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.